0: Welcome, this is LegalWise with Ted Eccles, a show dedicated to helping you find peace of mind through being well-informed and up-to-date. We want to help you defeat procrastination and provide information on legal matters that matter to you. I'm Ted Eccles, attorney, and you can reach us at LegalWiseGA.com. If you have a legal question or particularly an estate planning question, go to our website and write to us. We try to address questions that you, our listeners, will find interesting and helpful. You can also join us as part of our free virtual estate planning workshops. To register, give us a call, 770-506-9092, or visit our website at LegalWiseGA.com. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles, and we have a great lineup of questions today. We'll talk about blended families registering a trade name, choosing between adoption and guardianship, expanding your business into another state, and we'll talk about marriage certificates. And we'll hear from a special guest. So let's get started. <music> Sheila has a question for LegalWise with Ted Eccles. She says, several years ago I got divorced. After waiting for my kids to graduate from high school, I married a great guy who has children from a previous marriage. My husband and I know we need to make new wills and we want to take care of each other. But how do I make sure my children will receive something after I die? Well thanks for the question, Sheila. You are not alone. Many people who marry again, or marry someone with children, face this complicating factor. While challenging, it is possible to take care of both your spouse and your children. You've recognized that a basic will that simply gives all of your interest in property to a surviving spouse may very well result in a disinheritance of your children, because those children are not the natural heirs at law or the natural beneficiaries of the surviving spouse. Well, in fact, if that surviving spouse later dies without a will, The law makes no provision for someone other than the surviving spouse's heirs-at-law and the creditors of their estate. The surviving spouse can also make a new will that makes no provision for those kids, even if the will made when they were married had provisions for the children of both spouses. With all of these risks, Sheila, it is important that you consult with an experienced estate planning attorney like the ones at Eccles Law Group because you can take care of your spouse and your children through a thoughtful estate plan. Sometimes people will consider drafting a will that makes a distribution of some of the property directly to the children upon the death of the first spouse. Sometimes, however, the couple wants to keep the property intact until the death of the second spouse. In that case, it may be wise to consider a trust so that the surviving spouse can receive some benefit by using the property, while at the same time ensuring that the property will be preserved for distribution after the death of the second spouse. To learn more, you may want to join one of the free estate planning workshops available at EcclesLawGroup.com. Sheila, great planning can minimize the opportunity for conflict especially where a blended family is involved. Thanks for the question. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. If you have a question, go to LegalWiseGA.com. Josh has a question. He says, ever since high school, I've enjoyed woodworking. Over the last several years, I've acquired saws, drill presses, and other tools, and transformed my garage into a shop. Now that I'm retired, I want to sell some of my creations. My wife says I should consider a catchy name for marketing purposes. Do I need to do anything special if I want to sell my items with a different name? Well, thanks for the question, Josh. Here at LegalWise with Ted Eccles, we love helping folks pursue skills or trades they're passionate about it is especially rewarding for a craftsman when you realize the quality of your products is recognized by others who want to pay for them. Josh, it sounds like your wife believes a catchy name may be helpful in expanding your exposure for your woodworking creations. There are at least two areas of protection you'll likely want to consider. First, in Georgia the public has a right to know with whom they're doing business. So anytime a person desires to carry on a business under a trade name that does not disclose the individual ownership of the trade, it's necessary to file a registration statement containing that information in the Superior Court in the county where that business is located. This notice will also include publication in the local newspaper. The second thing that you'll likely want to protect is the name under which you're operating. This is sometimes called intellectual property and can be protected through acquiring a trademark or service mark. Josh, you would not want to spend a lot of time and money building a brand for your expertly crafted wood creations and then have someone else begin marketing their wood products using a name confusingly similar to yours. Through good planning, you can protect the reputation of your brand and build value for your business. As an additional consideration, some retailers and resellers, both online and in-person, require that all providers be formed businesses such as corporations or LLCs. And for that reason, depending on where you're hoping to sell, you should discuss forming a business entity with an experienced attorney. The legal requirements for both the trade name and the intellectual property should be handled by an experienced attorney in your area as part of the process of getting your business enterprise up and going. Let an expert handle these matters so that you can concentrate on your woodworking passion. Thanks for the question, Josh. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. We have a question from Brittany. She says, my sister recently passed away. She has one daughter who is 10 years old. The father is not in the picture and I want to help take care of my niece. What can I do? Well, I'm sorry for the loss of your sister, Brittany. Circumstances like these require an extra measure of God's grace for those who are willing to step up and fill in the gap. There are at least two options available for establishing someone with authority to act for... The daughter, who is a minor. First, depending on the facts as they relate to the biological father of the child, a responsible person or willing family member like yourself may want to consider becoming the permanent guardian of the child. Guardianships are handled in the probate court, and you'll likely want to consult with an attorney to assist in putting together a petition. A guardianship does not establish a new parent-child relationship but it does establish a person with legal authority to act for the child regarding important decisions like health care and educational choices. The probate court will maintain jurisdiction over the child until that child reaches the age of majority and annual filings are required by the guardian. Well another option to consider is adoption. This proceeding is handled in the Superior Court. If the adoption is granted, the adopting parent will become the legal parent of the child, and a new birth certificate will be issued listing the adopting parent as the child's parent. There are certain governmental incentives to consider that may help offset the cost of the proceeding with the adoption, and no additional court filings are necessary after the adoption is complete. Adoption, however, has a lifelong impact because the child is given the status as a child of the adopting parent and will be entitled to inherit from that parent and have the legal status as that person's child, even after the age of 18. Brittany, you'll want to meet with an attorney to review your options and determine what's in the best interest of your sister's daughter. Thanks for the question. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. If you have a question, go to legalwisega.com. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles, and we're joined today by special guest Monica Bernal with Real Estate by Monica with Keller Williams Realty. Welcome, Monica.
1: Thank you, Ted. Thank you for having me.
0: Um, you've been in the real estate business a long time and representing buyers and helping them find houses. Why is it important to use a quality lender when you're looking to buy a house?
1: Hey, that's an excellent question. So it's really important to go with a lender that has been recommended to the buyer, either by a relative, friend, or the realtor, because Many things can go wrong, and uh, it is very important that the lender does a an approval versus a pre-approval because you don't want to get to the second week of a contract after the buyer has invested money on the inspection and the appraisal just to find out that they really don't qualify.
0: Now, you've drawn a distinction there between approval and pre-approval. Are there some lenders out there who won't do an approval until you've actually put a house under contract?
1: Unfortunately, yes.
0: And what is the difference in that for lenders when they, when they say they're giving you a pre-approval letter versus an actual approval?
1: An actual approval, the lender collects all of their documents and it sends the file through underwriting just pending a property. So it gets approved by underwriter, meaning someone already saw and reviewed all of their financials.
0: Yeah, that can be that can be key because having done closings in the past myself, that going into underwriting can create quite a delay sometimes, can't it?
1: Yes, absolutely. There is so many things that can be done before going under contract that will make the process so much smoother for the buyer and the seller.
0: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned a, a seller and and their participation. Of course, uh, contracts always involve buyers and sellers. And so, if the mm-hmm. if the buyer is having trouble um, with their lender or getting their documents together, and they're running up on the closing deadline that's contained in the contract what are some of the consequences a buyer might experience if they need to go and ask for an extension from that seller
1: okay so that it's an excellent question because it can get really stressful for the buyer and the seller so it can result on extension fees or even the seller not willing to extend if it goes past two extensions so it's it's it can be a real issue
0: yeah in addition to those things i've seen sellers require additional earnest money be put up by the buyer have you seen that as well
1: yes Yes, there is, so many, there is so many ways to protect the seller as a listing agent, and it really depends on the situation and whether the house is vacant or not, but definitely it can result on additional e- earnest money. It can result on a extension fee, a fixed extension fee, or a, a even a per diem, which means that every single day that you're delayed, you are being charged a fee.
0: Yeah, and that takes us right back to the first point you were saying is to make sure that your lender has their act together when you go out and Absolutely. Uh, yeah, as a buyer looking for a house. So, there's been a number of challenges over the last year and a half or so. What have you seen with new constructions and the challenges associated with the buyer who's really wanting to buy a house that that uh, they have a part in selecting the construction materials, the flooring, the cabinetry, and so forth.
1: So that is a, a fun, fun, fun project. And the challenges that we are seeing right now is, first of all, is pricing. So new construction prices is definitely not what it used to be over a year ago. So that is something that buyers can expect to see is like super high prices on new construction but the other thing is i really recommend for a buyer that is looking to buy new construction to have preparations of housing for a year 10 to 12 months it's if the house is being selected from the lot from the beginning to the end it it is really taking between 10 to 12 months regardless of what builders say
0: yeah, but I remember a time when builders would say they could finish a house in 4 to 6 months. But yes. yeah, but that's that is um evidently not not the market anymore.
1: Right. And even now when builders say 6 to 9 months, I really really prepare my buyers to to be open-minded that it can literally take 10 to 12 months just because of what we are seeing overall with most builders. Unless the house is already halfway up, it's the difference. We are talking about the ones that are being built from the ground up.
0: What drives the price in the housing market? Is it the when the price to construct a new home increases like it has over the last year and a half, does that cause uh, existing homes to go up in value, or is it more driven by – the lack of supply
1: it's definitely both supply and demand is considered on the pricing but um, it's it's literally a combination of the both so when appraisers do a cma or an appraisal i should say they consider you know everything that is around it and it definitely new construction takes big part on the pricing
0: let me ask a question about the legal wise with Ted Eccles listener that may be thinking that I may want to sell in the near future and either relocate or downsize. What are the options for a seller that, that um, knows that they're going to need to to sell soon, but maybe they're not quite ready to make the move yet. Do they have any choices?
1: Oh, absolutely. So if if the seller knows that they have to go and they don't have a place to go yet, or they don't know exactly what their next move is going to be, they have the option of putting their house on the market and securing a buyer. And sometimes, many cases, even the closing, because you can always lease it back for like up to 90 days from the buyer. And being a seller's market, that is something easy to do nowadays. It's easy to negotiate.
0: What's the biggest concern that a, that a seller might have in thinking about that lease back? Is there anything they need to be uh, on the lookout for or, or just have their eyes open to?
1: Not really. I don't have any concerns for the seller. It's um, as long as they they do... um, an occupancy amendment stating what the terms are going to be it serves as a lease as an actual lease so they are protected that they will be able to stay there
0: i think um i think you're right a good written agreement is important they may want to consider getting uh, a renter's insurance for their contents and uh, just during that interim period while they're leasing back and um, I think you're right. From a seller standpoint, that could be a good option so that they're not having to scramble around and then mm-hmm. wait, wait for the possible closing to happen or not happen when they really need to get out.
1: I think it puts them on a really good position because if they have to sell in order to qualify for their purchase, they can actually close on it and secure the sale. And then they have the money they need to go into their next
0: purchase. Yeah, that's a great point. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles, and we've been visiting with Monica Bernal with Real Estate by Monica, Keller Williams Realty. If they have more questions about buying or selling a house, how can they get in touch with you?
1: You can definitely reach me at 678 And you can actually text that number as well and request a call back, and we can call you back.
0: What's that website address?
1: It is dot hometeam.com, which is dot team dot team.
0: Thanks, Monica. We'll see you next time. Thank you for having me, Ted. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. Michelle has a question. She says, several years ago, my brother and I created an LLC for our hunting supplies business. We don't sell firearms, but we sell lots of other products designed to enhance the enjoyment and success of the hunting experience. We're thinking of opening a location in another state. Do we have to form a new LLC in that state? Well, congratulations on your success, Michelle. Family-owned businesses can be very rewarding, particularly if you're able to join forces and talents to accelerate the profitability of the enterprise. Once a company decides on the state where they're wanting to expand, it's a good idea to check with that jurisdiction on the requirements for establishing a business presence there. However, in most cases a new LLC does not have to be formed. Most states allow a company formed in one state to obtain permission to operate, sometimes called a certificate of authority of a foreign company, so that the residents of that state are provided additional protections. For example, Through this certificate of authority, companies are typically required to designate a registered agent in that state that's legally authorized to receive service of a lawsuit if a complaint is filed against that company. As an important restraint on the foreign business, the law of that state may prevent that foreign business from maintaining a lawsuit in that state if it does not have the appropriate certificate of authority. Each state has their own stipulations and requirements that must be met before they will issue that Certificate of Authority to the foreign business. In addition, if you don't obtain the certificate prior to beginning your business activity there, the state may also impose a penalty on your business. Consult with an attorney prior to expending any significant resources on your expansion so that you're fully aware of the investment required to enter into this new market. So, Michelle, I wish you and your brother success as you expand your business. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. If you have a question, visit LegalWiseGA.com. I remember fondly my wedding day. I would rank the day of my nuptials as one of the most important days of my life. While it was a day of celebration, the significance of the event brings with it a certain amount of stress and anxiety for most participants. I recently attended a beautiful wedding in one of Georgia's beautiful country communities. The weather was perfect, and the ceremony matched the personalities of the bride and groom and honored the significance of the occasion. The wedding was great. A few days after the wedding, the bride was admiring the marriage certificate and observed, to her great concern, that there was an error as to her personal information. She was concerned and wanted to know the significance of this error on the document. As you can imagine, a mistake on an important document like a marriage certificate can be stressful. For some people, their mind would go to the extreme and they would ask, am I even legally married? For others, they may allow the doubts accompanying the cold feet of major decisions to cloud such an important event and ask if this could be just the excuse they need to have their marriage declared void. It would be shocking if a simple clerical error could impact the legality of the marriage, wouldn't it? Well, these typographical mistakes are typically called scrivener's errors or clerical errors and can most likely be corrected at the court where the license was issued. Each court will likely have its own procedure for correcting the document depending on the particular error involved. The best place to start would be contacting the issuing court to determine their process for resolving the issue. While the involvement of an attorney may not be necessary, it might be helpful if a petition needs to be drafted requesting the court provide certain relief. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. If you have a question, visit LegalWiseGA.com. You've been listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or want more information, contact us at LegalWiseGA.com or give us a call, 770-506-9092. While legal advice can help, we know that true peace is found through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us next week as we answer more interesting questions from listeners just like you. The information, comments, and opinions expressed in Legal Wise with Ted Eccles do not constitute legal advice. The topics discussed and opinions given are general in nature and not intended to create any legal relationship or opinion about specific circumstances. No attorney-client relationship has been or will be formed by any communication or legal discussion, and no representation is made regarding your particular legal rights. For legal advice, contact an attorney actively practicing in your jurisdiction.